Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for the blessing of this Lord's Day. We thank you that we, your people, can gather together in fellowship and union together, that we may worship you. And we thank you for this time of study, that we may look topically at your word and may glean from the wisdom of the Proverbs. We ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so not going to do an overall recap. We're on part three here. Uh, all I'm going to do is just say this. For those of you that have not been here uh, from the beginning, we made a, a distinction between conditional righteousness and positional righteousness. And could somebody just... In a nutshell, please tell us the distinction briefly between positional righteousness and conditional righteousness. Or this could be experiential righteousness. So, first of all, what's positional righteousness? Are standing before God through faith in Christ. So the, the okay, yeah, could could be, um, yeah. I actually true. It is part of the Christian sanctification, um, but conditional. Uh, or experiential righteousness uh, describes the righteousness that we encounter most often here in the Proverbs that has to do with how uh, we live out life that is not, we might say it is distinct, it is different from a judicial, a justifying righteousness. When Christ, when, when the Apostle Paul says that we are justified as righteous in Christ, He's not talking about experiential righteousness. But when the, the sage says in Proverbs that the righteous does this, or the righteous, etc., etc., he's not talking about positional righteousness. He's talking about experiential righteousness. And so we have to make that distinction. And as I, I, I said in part one of the study as well as last week, if you confuse the two, the Proverbs can get really, really quirky. Right? So we think about this from the standpoint of uh, the righteous one. We're going to look at this today. But the righteous one observes the house of the wicked. He who throws the wicked down to ruin. Uh, well, if that is, for example, uh, a positional righteous statement, then that would mean that the one who is perfectly righteous before God always does this. Well, we, we know that's just simply not the case. Furthermore, we know that someone who is even not positionally righteous before God in Christ can still do righteous things, right? So it's kind of like, uh, I think it was J.D. that asked the question uh, last week about, um, about righteous deeds. And, and we remember that righteousness is not defined by us. Because Romans 3 says that there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if righteous deeds are defined by us, we are in big trouble, 
right? So righteousness is defined by God in His reflection of who He is and, uh, and what He requires of what He has created, so forth and so on. So it's important for us to remember this distinction. Then last week, uh, we dove into the question of what are the characteristics of the righteous? And again, we're talking about the experiential righteous uh, as opposed to the positional righteous. What are the characteristics of a righteous person? Well, we looked at uh, last week that it's someone who pursues righteousness. So righteousness is important to someone who is this proverbial righteous one. Uh, they speak righteously. They're remembered as a blessing to others by virtue of their righteousness. They rest secure in this life because of their righteousness. They show compassion to others because of their righteousness. They consider their neighbor's welfare. They hate lying. They hate falsehood. And they give beyond their time and their benefit. And that's where we ended last week. You remember the topic was, uh, and I've used that expression before, of being good ancestors. Uh, meaning that, that, that a righteous person thanks beyond their children's children generation. They think about uh, others when there's no benefit to them uh, in this life at all. So that brings us to number nine. Uh, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, number nine. And that's where we left off. So let's pick up there. Uh, the righteous gives generously. The righteous gives generously. And look at that proverb with me. Fools mock at the guilt offering. Okay, let's stop right there. What's the guilt offering? Got to, got to understand that to understand the proverb. So what, what, is, what is the guilt offering? Huh? What did I say? Oh, give generously. Oh, that's what I meant for all Covenant Presbyterian members. So... <laughs> That, that was a joke, really. <laughs> Not really. All right. Uh, so give sincerely. Uh, so what is, what is the guilt offering? You students of your Old Testament, what is the guilt offering? That's right. And typically specific, right? Something, something uh, has, uh, someone has committed a, a sin. It is present on their mind. We hear the psalmist cry out about this. But the guilt offering is brought by virtue of the guilt of that sin, an offering made in the temple uh, to God. And so it says here, who mocks that? So, pause there for just a second. And again, if you want me to bring this into New Testament terminology, we know that Christ serves as the perfect fulfillment of all of the temple sacrifices. Of course, this included. And so, we look to Christ as the fulfillment of that. He who knew... Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, right? He who knew no sin... Let's see, what's it say? God made him who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. The righteousness there being, of course, positional righteous. So we're righteous before God by virtue of the sacrifice of Christ. And in that sense, the fool mocks that. 
So from an Old Testament perspective, we could say that the fool mocks the guilt offering. That's ridiculous. From our perspective, we could say that the fool mocks the gospel. Well, we, we see plenty of that, don't we? I mean, how many of us have heard, witnessed, or even ourselves been mocked because we believe the gospel that says, I'm a sinner saved only by the grace of God through faith in Christ alone. And there is no salvation apart from that, that gospel. Well, that's not, a popular, that's not a popular position, is it? The fool says that is ridiculous. They, the fool mocks that. But then the second half of that says, but the upright enjoy acceptance. The upright enjoy acceptance. What does that mean? And let me help you here as you're thinking through it. Scholars tell us that it is in relation to the first clause. So that you got to know the first clause and what that means for the second clause in this one sentence to make sense. Fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. That's right. That's right. That's that. That's it in in a nutshell. Uh, hopefully, you could all all hear hear Jerry and his his wonderful explanation of that. Is the the one who is upright of heart, who is bringing it not with a false humility or a mocking, but is bringing his offering to the temple. Uh, he enjoys acceptance of that. Uh, by virtue of how he his heart right heart attitude, we might say, for that. What would be a New Testament corollary to that? And I'm thinking specifically about Christians, of course. What would be a, a, a New Testament cor, corollary, corollary there? Okay, yeah, that would be a good. That would be a, a really good New Testament example. The widow's mite, where she is, she is giving with a right heart attitude. Jesus even points to her as an example. This is how you give. She's giving sincerely. She's giving with a right heart attitude, and she's also giving generously. So, see, I could have left that word up there, uh, but <laughs> but uh, the point is is that uh, giving is a point of the heart. And another thing to think about this way, and you've heard me quote this in our worship services before in relation to our tithes and offerings and, and this sort of thing, that when the New Testament talks about giving, it is typically in the sense of a right heart attitude. So when, when, when someone gives reluctantly, or, well, the church is forcing me to do this, or, or I feel guilted in, into giving this, I think you, you've heard me say enough, you know, don't give. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is to be a cheerful giver, as the Apostle Paul says. Uh, the point is to have a right heart attitude. And, of course, then that puts an emphasis on that uprightness. Number 10, Proverbs 21.12, The righteous one observes the house of the wicked. He throws the wicked down to ruin. 
Okay, I'm going to pause here for just a second. So just a, a translation note. Um, note that the English Standard Version translation that we're using here uh, has intentionally capitalized righteous one. Um, why do you think, this, we're just going to chase our translation rabbit for just a second. Why do you think that, so it's not capitalized in the original language, if that, if that helps you at all. Uh, uh, so, in fact, it's one word. Um, why do you think the translators have chosen to capitalize these two words based on what we've studied in the last two sessions? So this goes back again to what we talked about the very first study. Um, what they're doing is they're trying to draw our attention to this person. Remember, it's kind of like what we talked about. I think it was Randy that brought this up last week. Uh, it's kind of like what we talked about in, in terms of the way that the sage writes is typically, not, not typically, but is often with the use of... Um, Jesus would use hyperbole. The sage will use absolutes. So, so in this case, the righteous one we would think of in the sense of perfection, right? So is there anyone experientially perfectly righteous? No, but for Christ. So we are then given the example, but the example that the sage gives us is in the absolute. So what the translators are doing is, is they're, they're showing us, hey, this is that proverbial person. We might even say it's Christ, but we don't have to. The point is, this is the, this is the person, this is the wise person of the Proverbs. They're the righteous one. Okay, so with that being said then, what does this righteous one Observe the house of the wicked. What does it mean to observe the, observe the house of the wicked? Well, let's look at the second clause and, and see if that helps it at all. He says, he throws the wicked down to ruin. So now we've got him observing, then we've got him throwing. What is this proverb teaching us? Okay, it could be in, in the sense that, that we are to act righteously as God watches us. And as Peter said, uh, be holy as God is holy. That, that's, a, that's definitely a lead in. What else? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, I think, secondary point. I think that's a great secondary point is he's not just looking and seeing that there is wickedness, but he's actively engaging against it. And uh, so that, that's a great observation. What else? <laughs> yeah, it comes to ruin, right? Eventually, the wicked shall have their day, and so uh, wicked come to ruin, right? Well, the, the general, and all these points that you've, you've said are good, the, the general idea is that the righteous one exercises justice. Exercises, is it a Z or an S? Exercises justice. In other words, think with me. The one who is uh, righteous knows the difference between right and wrong. Right? Did I spell it wrong? Exer. Is it an S? 
Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. You know, you can race on a whiteboard, but it's not nearly as messy, and it doesn't have the... Uh, isn't that awesome? Yeah. Don't, don't give away my secrets. We keep this... We gotta, I have to have some marital confidentiality in my life. You realize there's very little, right? <laughs> so the righteous one, got to get back on target here. The righteous one, by virtue of his righteousness, knows the difference between right and wrong. He knows when he sees wicked. She knows when she sees something that is wicked. That's the observing. So it is not just, well, I'm, the na- I'm, the, I'm that freaky neighbor that's watching everybody in the neighborhood to see if they put their recycle bin out on the right day. We're not talking about that person, right? We're talking about someone who can look within the culture in which they live, including a self-examination of their own life, and say, I am able to see the difference between righteous and wicked, and I observe it in a sense of an active looking and knowing the difference, and I act on it. It means I'm not a passive participant in the world that I live. And so, he or she exercises justice. Proverbs 21, 25, and 26. The desire of the sluggard... I have to pause here for just a second. I always, I, I'm bothered a little bit at a few of the choices every once in a while that the ESV makes uh, in their, their translation choices. And I've, I've always thought it would be funny, fun, whatever, if when they're, they're going gonna to capitalize righteous one, I wish they'd do the bad guys too. Just go ahead, capitalize sluggard. Capitalize the fool. Uh, because they show up just as much. Nevertheless, the sluggard, lowercase or uppercase s, kills him for his hand, his desire, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. Now, the general idea here is generosity, right? Now, we have already looked at in previous classes... I'll remind you, we've been going through the Proverbs for a year now. Uh, We have already looked at in previous classes this sluggard and how he behaves. But the general characteristic here is the desire of a sluggard kills him. What's the, the, the general point there or principle? So a sluggard is not someone who does not have desire. It's not someone that, that doesn't pursue something that's just comatose, so to speak. No, I mean, he has desire, but his desire is misplaced. His, mis, his desire is for his laziness. It's for that which is not uh, upright. And so, it kills him in the sense that he refuses to labor. Now, again, we've already looked at this before. The Proverbs are very clear, uh, and, and again, of course, the New Testament is uh, as well. Uh, if I may quote the Apostle Paul or paraphrase him uh, and, and summarizing what the Proverbs teach, you know where I'm going, don't you? If you don't work, you don't eat. 
Yeah, so that's what Paul teaches. That's the summary. We've already looked at that, that topic. But then it goes on and says, all day long, this sluggard is craving and craving what he wants, but he refuses to do anything about it. Uh, he'd rather uh, panhandle or, or seek some way out of, uh, of, of getting what he needs to feed himself other than work. And then the last clause is the one I want to draw your attention to. But the righteous gives and does not hold back. Now, the ESV has chosen to translate the Hebrew here uh, with somewhat of, a, of an idiom um, and, and with this idea of not holding back. Um, but the, the general idea, you, you get the point, right? Is, is someone who gives generously, so they're not holding back in the sense that they have uh, plenty, and so they're not going to be restrained in this sense, right? So this is how the, the righteous gives. The righteous gives generously. And so my question is, does this negate discernment? It's, I'm, I'm asking you a Proverbs question, but not in, contained in this verse. We've actually already looked at this topic before, but for topic of discussion, does this proverb negate discernment? What I mean by that is, while you're thinking, is when the, prover- when the sage says that I am to give generously, does that mean that I give without considering who I'm giving to, how much I'm giving, what it will be used for, so forth and so on. Does this proverb negate discernment? Okay, all right. What you sow, you shall reap. That's good. Exactly. That's well put. Yeah. So, but but why I'm bringing this up is, and I've I've, I've actually got a book on my shelf by a, a leading author in our own denomination, who who tells me in that book doesn't matter. You just just close the eyes. If he's going to use it for heroin, just give it give it to him no matter what. And as a student of the Proverbs, there are so many Proverbs about discernment that I think, that's the, I mean, I refuse to even give the book out. I've got it on my, my, my shelf, really, just in case I need to see what not to tell and teach people. Uh, it's so silly. And the Proverbs, and we've looked at it before, over and over again, are, is is teaching us the wisdom of God, and that wisdom also includes discernment. So to Chris's point, what this proverb is saying is not teaching us that we don't practice discernment, right? I mean, I jokingly say, you know, we we get hit up at the, the church office all the time. People will come by looking for handouts and and, you know, my, my, my joke is, Sydney's heard it so many times, it's not even funny anymore, but I jokingly say that the first guy that comes up, instead of asking me for a bus ticket to Nebraska, just says, I need some money to get a fifth of whiskey. I'm like, I'm going to go buy him a fifth of whiskey. Because for 10 years, nobody, y'all were supposed to laugh at that, actually. Uh, that's the cue. Uh, yeah, yeah, camera, video's going, man. 
guy's got a problem. No, I'm, th- I'm like, I just want some honesty. And, uh, but, but the idea is that we do practice discernment, and in that discernment, uh, we also don't need to allow it to curb, to Chris's point, our generosity. We're to have an attitude of not holding back. We are to have the wisdom to know when it's right to give and when it's wrong. And there's a great book. Uh, in fact, looking around, I know a number of you were actually serving on our missions committee when we went through this book, but there is an excellent book uh, that is published by two uh, PCA professors at Covenant College, and it's called um, When Helping Hurts. And I, I keep actually extra copies in my office uh, to give out on, for this very topic. There is a time when we are to give. There is a time when giving actually hurts. We're called to know the difference. That's the wisdom that God gives and teaches us through the Proverbs. That's not what the sage is teaching here. What the sage is teaching here is, but our heart attitude should always be bent toward giving giving generously, not holding back. Number 12, courageous. The wi- Proverbs 28.1, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I, I love this one. Uh, so, first of all, uh, here's, the, here's the picture, right? The, the, the sage is painting this, this awesome picture for us. Is the wicked is a coward. He's running away, and who is he scared of? Well, we don't know. Who is he running from? Nobody, right? Uh, his own shadow, right? He's, he's, he's running from, from, from no one, right? Why is he running? Why is the wicked running when there's nobody after him? Guilt could be a guilty conscience. That's where my mind goes, right? What else? Fear. The wicked, by virtue of God's own law, you know, the Apostle Paul says that, that God's law has been written upon the heart of every human being. Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, right? And so there is, in that sense, where someone can, can have no knowledge of God whatsoever, and yet have a guilty conscience and fear the retribution of God even if, they, even if they don't even believe in God, right? Romans chapter 2, right? But look at the second clause. But the righteous are bold as a lion. So it's a simile. The lion is imagery of what? Strength, boldness, even courage, right? Where is, where is Brandon when we need him for the Cowardly Lion song? Every time I say, I think courage, you know, to any Wizard of Oz fans. You know, Brian, I mean, uh, Brandon played uh, the Cowardly Lion in the Wizard of Oz, so he knows all the songs. So you can ask him about this sometime. He'll sing them for you. Uh, but uh, good grief. Oh, so, so what does it mean then? What does the simile mean? The righteous, or rather, why? Why are the righteous bold? Why are the righteous courageous? 
because of, did you say confidence or competence? Confidence, okay. They had, yeah, I mean, that's a great way to think of it, isn't it? I mean, if, if, if I'm, if I'm walking, walking faithfully in, in the righteousness of God, what am I, what am I afraid of? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, interestingly enough, that to, for an aside, um, you know, that's a great encouragement for all of us to live righteously. Uh, not only the primary reason is we seek to glorify God with our lives, to pay honor to the forgiveness, the positional righteousness that we have in Christ, but so also uh, by virtue of what God has done for us, we may walk without fear uh, because of that righteousness. Yeah, so the general idea is, is that righteousness emboldens us, and I mean that in the sense of, of a positive sense. It's a positive courage. Number 13, I've got two Proverbs for you. <clears throat> Proverbs 13.9, The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. And Proverbs 29.6, An evil man is ensnared in his transgression, but a righteous man sings and rejoices. You know, I couldn't leave that one out. Isn't that a beautiful proverb? I just love that picture of that. A righteous man sings. Who sings? And, and the, the implication is these are not songs of lament, are they? Because it's coupled with rejoicing. Uh, he, he sings. He's got nothing to worry about. He's not fearing what man can do to him. He's walking in his righteousness, and so he's just singing. He's got a heart of joy. I think that's a, that's a beautiful picture. But look at the first proverb. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. So the, the metaphor is the lamp, right? So the, the, you've got the, the imagery of this lamp, and when the, the lamp is lighted or lit, it is the idea of what? When it says that the light of the righteous, it's a metaphor, right? What, what, is, what is the metaphor? What is the sage teaching us using that metaphor? The, what is the light of the righteous? Because you've got to know that to know the second clause, right? Well, I mean, it could be from a, from a, from a, a, a new covenant perspective. We, we could say that by virtue of, of Christ and the righteousness that we have in Him, that positional righteousness, our light shines. Jesus certainly said, let your light shine among men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. But that form of righteousness was actually, Jesus was referring to the experiential or conditional righteousness. And so what is that light? It could be in the sense of a, of a Christian, yeah. There again, I'm gonna. I sort of gave my 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 uh, my bang away by quoting Matthew chapter five verse sixteen. Jesus said, "Let your light shine among men, that they may see your good deeds." And so he gives us the metaphor, and then he tells us what the metaphor is. Right. So so a light, Jesus says, is how I behave. <laughs> Positively, righteously. When I'm, I'm living a righteous light, I'm shining a light out into the world. And so what, what's Jesus saying? 
God's glorified, to your point, in terms of the glory of God. God is glorified when people look at me and they see me living righteously. Now, again, you, I said before, if you confuse positional and experiential righteousness, uh, you're going to get confused on a lot of the Proverbs, right? So what Jesus is not saying is that your salvation is dependent upon how good of a life you live. And if your light shines brighter than someone else, well, then, you know, maybe God will have favor upon you. Of course, we know that's not the case. That's anti-gospel. Uh, we know that, that the gospel teaches us that our positional righteousness is secured in the final work of Christ. But in terms of experiential righteousness, Jesus is teaching us the same thing as this proverb, which is, our righteousness shines. And I think that's a beautiful metaphor, don't you? To think that how I, I live for the Lord and how I, I live righteously in a fallen and dark world, the metaphor is a good one. It is a dark world. And so righteousness creates a light within a dark world. But that's not all the proverb says, is it? It says, the light of the righteous rejoices. Why rejoices? So the wicked, their works, their light, it will be put out eventually. The idea here that the sage is teaching us is, is not only does our light shine, but it is also something that we rejoice in. You think about this from a, from a Christian perspective, is we truly desire to please the Lord. And when we are walking in the Lord, and when we are walking faithfully for Him, it indeed gives us joy. We receive joy by virtue of living righteously. All right, I've got to hurry. Number 14, considers the needy. Proverbs 29, 7, A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. He considers the needy. Some of you recognize this proverb. We've actually looked at it before. We talked about this concept of the rights of the poor. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. What, what does that mean? Because the second clause is pretty much speaks for itself. The, the, the wicked, they, they don't know anything about the rights of the poor. Uh, so that, that answers itself. But what does this teach us when it says that the righteous man knows the rights of the poor? True, true. Someone who is truly poor, they need our help. And we see that repeatedly throughout Scripture. That's an excellent point. What else? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think that that's an excellent uh, uh, add-on to that to, to to what Bradley said. I think there's an importance for us to understand that uh, those who are truly poor, those who are truly in need, uh, indeed need to be shown the respect. They need the assistance that needs to be provided, etc. But what it tells us about the righteous is is he not only recognizes but he also knows what they are due. What, someone's rights, in this sense, are what they are due, what they need. And so, again, don't get caught up on the idea of, of rights. Get caught up on the fact that this is someone who knows more than just, well, they're poor. He also or she also knows what is needed to help them in their situation. Number 15, I've got to hurry. Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. And Proverbs 21, 29. A wicked man puts on a bold face, <laughs> uh, but the upright gives thought to his ways. All right. So what is the first uh, proverb teaching us? The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. What does that mean? The context is conversation. Oh, that's a great idiom. Consider your words. Yeah. Consider what you are to say before you say it, right? Right. <laughs> what else? The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. Yes. Yeah, yeah. God-given wisdom that God promised him as, as a blessing, he exercised uh, in that and exercised that wisdom. The other idea, and I, I really want to draw your attention to this word, ponders. What does that mean? What does it mean to ponder something? Think yeah, think before you speak. And even out of, in, in, out of the context of speech, just in any situation, to ponder something... Does pondering require time? It does, doesn't it? That's right. So, so in this sense, there is a, a, a pause. I often think of, about the, uh, the, the um, jerk reaction, the uh, immediate response that may come out of my mouth is often wrong. You've heard the studies before uh, that they say that, that statistically, this is, I just think this is hilarious, the idea of, of late-breaking of, of late news, you know, immediate news, statistically speaking, is almost always wrong. Yeah, yeah. And so what, what you hear on the, oh, we've got to hurry, got to hear this, it's so important, it's a high likelihood that there's false information in there, and the real information comes out when? Yeah. You've heard me use this example before. I'm not going to go into uh, a number of examples, but it's sometimes weeks, it's sometimes months, it's sometimes years that the truth comes out. So late-breaking news isn't late-breaking after all, right? Well, it's the same thing with what I say. When I pause and I collect my thoughts and I consider my words and oftentimes consider whether I should say anything at all, what am I doing? I'm exercising 
discernment. Because I know what I'm capable of saying, and it is often not good. And so I am... Yeah, why did I say that? Yeah. Yeah. I heard someone say that, that they uh, wish they were more quick-witted and could say the things to people uh, after they think about it later, and they're like, man, I could I could have said that, and, you know, the, the, the zinger that comes 30 minutes to two hours later or whatever. And I, I, I said to one woman that said that to me, I said, no, you don't. Because oftentimes the spontaneous response is one of the worst. And oftentimes I've said things cruel and hateful and mean-spirited in an impassioned response in which I didn't ponder what I said. The second area of discernment that the sage gives us is he says the wicked man puts on a bold face. And this is a really good translation uh, from the Hebrew here. Uh, what does it mean to put on a bold face? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 this, this is, I, I am so convinced of this because it's my opinion, right? Yeah, I mean, this is the, this is the air we breathe, right? This is the age in which we, we live. It doesn't matter if, if there are any facts to, to draw from, but I am emboldened by the fact that it's, well, it's my opinion. Um, the other idea here uh, is, and it doesn't convey very well in English, but there's also a sense of deception, uh, intentional or unintentional. A wicked man puts on a, a bold face, uh, could be in fact characteristic of that wicked person's uh, deception, whether intentional or not. But the upright gives thought to his ways. Well, that's exactly what we talked about before. Of course, not in conversation, but how we live our lives. To give thought to my way is to exercise discernment. And again, uh, we could draw on the idea of, of ponder and uh, pausing long enough to make a wise decision. In conclusion, we don't have time to go over them. The 16th point is that the righteous is hated for their righteousness. Uh, and Proverbs 29.10, Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. And then Proverbs 29.27, The unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. Uh, I think these Proverbs speak for themselves, but the general idea is, is that if you live righteously, you can most certainly be assured you will encounter uh, some form of persecution by virtue of it. You'll be hated for living righteously. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God, we thank You for the positional righteousness that we have in Christ. Uh, that we, by Your grace, through faith in Christ, are righteous before You, our holy God. And we thank You that by virtue of this, that You enable us and You empower us by Your Holy Spirit to live a righteous life. We thank You for the example and we thank You for the righteousness that we see as You are glorified through it. We pray now that you would help us as your people to live as we are, to live out our righteousness before the world, shining our light, so to speak, that you may be glorified. 
We also pray that you would take what we have learned today, reminding us that we are sinners and saved only by your grace, that we would carry this now into worship. Prepare our hearts to worship you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.